We're going to look at two passages today, one from the beginning of Jesus' life and one from the end, Matthew chapter 2 um, and then John chapter 18. Uh, if you're visiting with us and aren't familiar with the Bible, we've gone ahead and printed this text for you um, in your worship guide on page 10. This is God's Word, Matthew chapter 2, starting with verse 1, reading through verse 12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When the Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. And then John chapter 18, Jesus before Pilate as he's going to the cross. John chapter 18, verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? And Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests had delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to him, So are you a king? And Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. You may be seated. Would you pray with me again and ask God's blessing on his word preached this morning? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we come to your word today, it is our prayer that as the reigning king, you might bring your power into our midst through your word and redeem broken areas of our lives. Maybe some of us for the first time coming to see you in all of your glory and entrusting our lives to you. Maybe it's the thousandth time this week that we need you to do that work of reorning our lives around your glorious reign. And so, O risen, reigning Savior, preach your word to us by your Spirit. 
Give us ears to hear. We pray in your name, our Savior. Amen. Well, if you've caught the theme um, of our service uh, this week, we've been singing and reading about Jesus as King. We celebrate that this time of year. We sing all these songs celebrating the arrival of Jesus as King, but I think we come, become so accustomed to it that we really miss the world-changing um, event that was the breaking in of God as King and His kingdom, because you know, being king was an essential part of Jesus's ministry. That's why we looped in John 18 in our reading of the um, wise men narrative of Matthew chapter 2, because um, being king, God's king in particular, was an essential aspect of Jesus's identity and therefore his mission. When he came into the scene during his public ministry, he came in with two pretty radical announcements. One, the first thing he came was preaching that the kingdom of God is at hand. Like in my person, he's preaching the kingdom of God has arrived at hand. It's here. You look me in the eyes, you'll see that the kingdom of God has arrived. And my kingdom is here because I'm the king. After he began his public ministry, he goes into the uh, synagogue in Nazareth and he uh, thumbs through the scroll of Isaiah to preach his first sermon. And he preaches a pretty radical announcement from um, Isaiah's prophecy. As he thumps through there, he arrives at at Isaiah chapter 16, and he, he announces this. He says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to bring good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he looks them in the eye and he says, Today... This scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And and you get this idea that in the person of Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God has arrived. And what this king's arrival means is that he's shown up to set captives free to a life of flourishing. Liberation from captivity to a flourishing life. And so... Here we are, the announcement of Jesus' birth through the ears of the first century Jew. They would have heard this theme, right? We we sentimentalize the, the, the birth of Jesus. But for a first century Jew, they didn't hear this quaint little story. This was the announcement. If God's king has arrived, it's the announcement that God has shown up to put the world back together again. Satan had tempted Adam and Eve early in the garden. God had created this perfect world where life was flourishing under his care with his presence there amongst his people. Adam and Eve, tempted by Satan, sinned. Satan became the ruler of the world and held the world in its grip and under its power. And sin had broken the world. But God, and that's the repeated refrain of the promises of Scripture, but God, sin and its brokenness won't have the final say. But God, but God promised to restore what had been broken by sin and Satan. And so part of Israel's identity was they were awaiting people. They were awaiting for God to show back up and to keep his promise. When God's king arrived on the scene, it was the anticipation of world renewal under the reign of God. This is what is promised in 
uh, Isaiah 9 that the choir had sung. Wonderful counselor, prince of peace, mighty God. They're military terms. God's going to come back and conquer the world and establish his kingdom. In Zechariah chapter 7 verse 14, this is the promise that is announced to Israel. The Lord will be king over all the earth. And on that day... The Lord will be one and his name will be one. And then what follows that promise is this sweeping promise of prosperity and ease and security flourishing. Now look at what happens in Matthew chapter 2 when the king is born. The announcement of Jesus' birth reaches the nations of the world. Because the entire creation has been waiting for this day. Wise men from the east, probably... uh, The Greek is magi, probably representatives from other king's courts, probably sorcerers from magicians from these other courts of nations around the world. We don't know how many. Tradition puts it at three because there's three gifts. We're not really sure. But what we are sure of is that they arrived to the one who's been born king of the Jew to bring their gifts to lay before God's king. You see the picture of the entire creation gathering around the throne because God's king has arrived to put the whole world right again. They lift their expensive gifts at his feet and gold and frankincense and myrrh. The riches of the nations are coming to the feet of God's king. And that's the pattern of the kingdom. When God's king arrives, it's liberation unto flourishing. He's come to set captives free. He's come to restore sight to the blind. And so he starts performing these miracles in his ministry. And they're more than just proving that he was God in the flesh, though he was. His miracles are a declaration that God's shown back up to put the world right again, to remove its brokenness, to follow the pattern of liberation to flourishing. So when Jesus heals a man born blind, he's doing more than just showing that he's God and has power over sickness. This is a man since birth was cursed by the brokenness of the world and feeling it in his body. And Jesus freed him so that he might see the colors of his wife's eye and the spring and its bloom and all of its glory and flourish as a human being. The woman who'd been bleeding for a good bit of her life and had spent all that she had on the doctor's help encountered the king. And he healed her so that he could, she could be restored back to health. But more than that, freed from her shame and restored back to a community and into worship. When Jesus calms the storm, it's more than just the simple display of his power over creation. The raging chaos of the storm waters were calmed by the sound of God's king's voice. It's as if the lulled Creation, the raging creation is lulled into a restful slumber because the king is speaking to his broken creation. And so because God is the only one who can restore what's been broken by sin and being held captive by Satan, he sends his king. We sentimentalize this truth. We've heard this story so often it becomes quaint to us. Oh, the king of the world is a baby. Oh, isn't that, isn't that cute? Look at a little baby in his manger. Or we moralize it. The king came as a baby to outcast, so we should come and go out to the weak and outcast. Those things are true. 
But it's not what's radical about the arrival of this king. For the people who are hearing it from the first time, this is why it was so radical to them. Because they were an oppressed people. When you were oppressed, the announcement that your king has arrived and would establish a flourishing kingdom is the ground of all present and future hope. My king's arrived. My oppression is going to be set free. In the mid-90s, the Hutu tribe of Rwanda took power and in 100 days systematically slaughtered close to a million of their rival tribe, the Tutsis. Women were raped, children were slaughtered. The military systematically wiping out entire villages. The only way those type of numbers work over a million in such a short period of time, if one party holds, one tribe holds all of the power and the other is so weak and helpless that their oppressors can do whatever they want with them whenever they want because they are utterly helpless. Now, if you are utterly oppressed and so weak that you are not able to do anything about it, the arrival of a king who would free you from captivity and set you back to a life of flourishing is radically good news. And so humankind, we have this greater, more destructive oppressor in sin and Satan. The Bible talks about sin as a power. Before it ever speaks about sin as something that we do, it speaks of sin as a power that has enslaved every man, woman, and child. It's an impressive power. And the reason we sin isn't because we have bad influences. It is because at the core, we are bad people. That's what sin has done to us. It has corrupted every part of our being and holds us in its clutches. And so this is why clever techniques don't work all that well in creating change in your life. The next book, it sells a lot of books. Clever Techniques sells a lot of self-help books, but it has no power over the power of sin in our lives because it is an oppressing, enslaving power. And the oppressor has a collaborator outside of us. For Satan is the ruler of the sage. The Bible has a view of reality that sees these two kingdoms in conflict. Satan is the prince of the world who holds the power of death and keeps our eyes blind from the truth of the gospel. An enemy within, an enemy without. We're helpless and weak against these two oppressive powers. So, the announcement that the king of God has been born is the hope of liberation into a flourishing kingdom from the oppression of sin and Satan. The king, though, had to liberate in a very particular way. This is why we're looping in John chapter 18 and marrying it to the birth narrative of Jesus. Because these two oppressive powers of sin and Satan could only be defeated by the king in the cross. The cross where the king is crucified is the great power over sin and Satan and death. 
The danger this time of year is that we divorce the birth of Jesus from the death of Jesus. Interestingly, out of the four Gospels, only two of them actually have a birth narrative, record the birth of Jesus. But all four spend a great deal of time either building up or telling us about the crucifixion of the king. Christmas anticipates the cross, if you will, but the cross also assumes Christmas. They go together inseparably. The king had to be born and crucified so that he could defeat the oppression of sin and Satan. See, if he had not been born like us, he could not have died our death. If he had not shared in humanity in every respect that we are, he could not have died as our substitute in our place. So what I want to do for the rest of our time is talk about how the king broke these two oppressive powers through his birth and death and how life is now lived in liberation, flourishing as we walk with the king. So at first, as the liberating king, Jesus conquers sin in his birth and his death so we can become like him in his victory, right? The little babe born The man crucified by the ruling powers of this age on the cross is the same one who reigns in heaven above and is flourishing right now at this moment and will flourish until all of creation is brought under his feet. And so because humankind has been imprisoned by sin, Jesus had to take on human flesh so that he could die the sinner's death to break the power of sin. You see, the cross is more than just you get forgiven and then you get a a ticket into heaven one day. The cross is more than just about the forgiveness of your sins. It is about Jesus breaking the power of sin in our lives. So imagine this scenario. You have gotten yourselves deep into debt to a drug lord. The drug lord owns you. He gives you one option for escape. You can become my slave For the rest of your life. You can either die by my hands. Or serve me forever. You would have no freedom. You can only do what your master commands. And he commands every moment of every day. Every desire you have. Every dollar you own. You are enslaved to him. And the only way you can be free. Against that oppressor. Is if you die. Now. This is what happens in the cross. Romans chapter 6. Now we know that our old man, the old sinful man that was enslaved to sin, was crucified with Jesus in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we who would no longer be enslaved to sin, for one who died has been set free from sin. I mean, what king does this? I mean, takes the death that his people deserve to die, bears their imprisonment so they could be set free. And as a result of of being united to Jesus in his death and resurrection, this is what Paul said, now you're, where's the king? He's not in a manger. He's seated on his throne. Well, if I'm with him, then so am I. 
to lift your eyes to heaven where Christ is seated and you with him. In the Christian life, there should be this determined confidence in our fight against remaining sin. Confidence that I belong to the king and he will get victory over this. The Christian life is a war. There's no, if there's a king and he's engaged in this conflict, won a victory, then the ongoing conflict with sin is not dealing with my little pet who might bite me every once in a while. It's a vicious enemy that is out for my destruction. But if I am in Christ, I fight against these remaining enemies that still inhabit the Christ-owned lands of my heart with a deep sense of confidence because the insurgents of sin still remain sneaking around the corners of your heart and they need to be defeated lest they overtake you. So the fight's not with equal powers. It's a war, but it's not a war with equal powers. Sin is a dethroned foe. And the king has taken up residence in you by his Holy Spirit. He lives and reigns in your life. And because of that, the remaining insurgence of sin has no power against Christ, who by his word yields his sword to destroy the remaining strongholds. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, speaking of God's word, though we walk in the flesh, this body, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they do have divine power to destroy strongholds. That's what the king does through his word. It's his sword that destroys the strongholds of sin in our lives. So take it up and read it with confidence. Meditate on it and watch the king destroy the remaining strongholds of sin in your life. Now get this, birth and death. He has been tempted in this world in all ways that you are, yet without sin, and now by his word, now knows how to overcome that particular sin in your life. Children, it's hard to obey your parents, isn't it? Struggle with that. He was born. He knew what, he knows what it's like to be a teenager. And the particular struggles of being a teenager. And now he reigns having defeated sin and knows how to come to your aid at just the right time through his word. You don't need a new technique for change. You you just need the old sword that has liberated thousands from the oppressive power of sin. Secondly, as liberating king, this is what Jesus does. I just celebrated this with Sam and Davis today. He actually plunders God's, Satan's kingdom by making us God's children. It's, a, it's a, an amazing, an amazing picture. You've been transferred, Paul says, from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved son. It's the other enemy. There are two axes of evil in the war against humanity. Satan has a kingdom in this world and the king has died. And in his death, Roman or Colossians chapter 2, hear this. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. Speaking of Satan and his minions, 
he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in the cross. I mean, Satan's repeated attempts to to dethrone God's kings were epic. Just after our reading in in Matthew chapter 2, the reason the wise men are told not to go back to Herod, because Herod is conspiring to slaughter Jesus and he's willing to kill every male child in his land to dethrone God's king. Satan's behind this. He's orchestrating history. Then at the start of his earthly ministry, Jesus faced 40 days in the desert, tempted by Satan. Then on the eve of his crucifixion, Satan tries one last time to keep him from the cross. And he recognizes, Jesus recognizes in, in Peter's, as he announces this, and Peter says, no, this should not be the way of the king. Jesus recognizes the enemy's lisp and says back, get behind me, Satan. Nothing will keep me from the cross. And then in the last ditch effort, through the earthly rulers of this present evil age, Satan pours all of his fury on the king, the king born in Bethlehem, dies just a short place away on a hill outside of Jerusalem. And from the first breath of his birth to the last breath on the cross, Satan was out to destroy God's kingdom. What a fool. For God was defeating the powers of darkness by that very death. The king conquered by dying. The death that the captives deserved to die. Satan had rightful claim to us. In our prideful rebellion, all of us have followed his ways. My way. My life. My money. My kingdom. That is the way of the evil one. So he holds sinners captives with the power of condemnation. Look at what you have done wrong. And with continual relentless accusations of guilt and shame. You're so filthy nobody will want anything to do with you. If anyone knew who you really were, they would never look you in the eye again. No one will love you because of how gross your heart is. He has imprisoned us with our own failures. And yet the king disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in the cross. This is the irony of the cross, right? Satan hungers for pride and power, but the power that broke his stronghold was the weak humiliation of the king, both in his birth and in his death. Listen to what one writer commenting on this passage in Colossians 2, this one author said, now they, Satan and his kingdom, are disabled and dethroned. And the shameful tree has become the victor's triumphal chariot before which his captives are driven out in humiliating procession. The involuntary and impotent confessors 
of their overcomer's superiority. You feel that? You feel like, you feel like an involuntary and impotent confessor seeing your king reigning, having conquered sin and Satan. This is what the gospel says to us. Jesus was born a baby to live the life that we could never live. He withstood all those temptations to sin where we have given in. He has remained victorious. And in doing so, that little baby grew through every stage of life to earn a record of righteousness for God's people. He lived the life that we should have lived. He died the death that we should die so that now the accuser has nothing to lay against you if you are in Christ Jesus. He is disarmed so that, Calvin says, they cannot bring forward anything against us. The attestation of our guilt itself being destroyed, nailed to that cross. Therefore, this is how the king fights with the ongoing wiles of the evil one who just seeks to tempt us before and after sin. See, before sin, he tempts us to love another thing. Right? And the promise that he lures us with is always that that thing will return love and satisfaction to us. And that's where temptation is always an appeal to our loves. If you love this thing, it will love you back. It's a lie. It never does. It always destroys us. It's a promise to, for service to flourishing. So to the unmarried, he says, look, God's just trying to keep sex from you because he doesn't want you to be happy. Because sex is happiness and fulfillment. Or at your job, he lures you to cut corners and pay, pad your expense account so you can make an extra buck because that extra thing will lead to your flourishing. He always appeals to our loves. We're made this way, Right? Our loves lead us to flourishing. So against that temptation, we fight with this promise. The Father loves me. The Son loves me. He has loves me so much that he died the death I should have died, lived the life I should have lived. So now I flourish in his kingdom. The gospel says back to him, it's all his accusations. He's just... Living in open shame, as the gospel speaks. The love of God paid for the satisfaction of your sin through his own son. And if he has given you his son, will he not graciously give you all things? Romans eight thirty one. And then after sin, he lures us with the loves that lead to flourishing that cannot satisfy but only destroy. And in return, the, the king says, love you. You don't have to give in to that. But then we do, and then Satan afterwards comes with accusations. Look what you've done. A true Christian would never do that. The worst one, you've heard it whispered into your ears a thousand times. You've done it again, and again, and again, and again, and there's no forgiveness for you now. And against these accusations, we again fight with the sword that is the word of the cross. Listen to how Paul fights Romans 8, 38. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, 
By rulers, he doesn't mean the rulers of the world. He means the ruler of the world and all his minions. Nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He triumphs, putting him to open shame. You see the evil one standing there, stripped of his power to condemn by the king who was born naked and died naked, bearing our shame in love. So, let me close with this. Who can bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who then is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of God in Christ? No. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Let's pray. Oh, Father, to what great lengths you would go to save your enemies. Lord Jesus, born so helpless so that the helpless could experience power and be liberated from our oppression. Help us walk by faith to believe these things are true about us. That we are children of God and if children joint heirs with the risen and reigning Christ. And because this is such a deep struggle for us, this is our prayer. Come, Lord Jesus, come. That we might reign with you forever and ever. Amen.